4: Good morning and it's Wednesday the 22nd of December It's the Michael Reid Show I'm Alison O'Reilly standing in for Michael for a few days Lots of discussion on the show this morning So do feel free to get in touch with us You can text or WhatsApp us on 086 1800 658 You can email us at info at lmfm.ie Or give us a call here at the station 041983 2000 Now let's take a look at what's coming up on today's show He's at the cold face of Ireland's COVID-19 pandemic in Our Lady of Lords Hospital. We'll be speaking to respiratory consultant and COVID lead Dr Ian Cunahan about how the Omicron variant will impact patients and staff and ask him if we're facing a winter of discontent. The Labour Party's finance spokesperson Jed Nash has welcomed the extension of supports for businesses announced yesterday but says the ad hoc nature of the announcement is causing anxiety for businesses. It's been described as the hidden pandemic that arose during the COVID lockdowns. We'll speak to the CEO of Women's Aid about the frightening rise in domestic violence and what actions we need to take to address the issues. Shocking images of more than 3,000 people queuing for food yesterday in Dublin show how sadly homelessness is not a thing of the past. And on the 15th of December 1947... 16-year-old Jimmy O'Neill disappeared from his family home in Waterford making him one of Ireland's longest missing children. We'll speak to his brother Frank about his lifelong search to find his brother. we look at the older community and the challenges they're facing at Christmas and the realisation that dental care is a big issue in Meath. But first, let's take a look at the Omicron variant situation here. We heard last night, of course, that the latest figures show 5,279 new cases of COVID-19 444 patients are hospitalised and 102 are in ICU Let's go to Dr Ian Cunahan, who is the respiratory consultant clinical director for the Department of Medicine and COVID lead at Our Lady of Lords Hospital here in Drogheda Dr Cunahan, good morning Good morning Alison Thanks very much for joining us here on LMFM. I suppose we'll take a look at the comments from the HSC CEO, Paul Reid, uh, today saying that January is shaping up to be a very difficult time. And of course, with the Omicron variant that we uh, just we, we can't stop hearing about it at the moment. What's it like in the Lord's Hospital at the moment?
3: Um, well, it, it's pretty busy at the moment. Uh, I think we're busy in terms of a you know, pre Christmas uh, rush the people you know usually there's some empty beds over uh, you know from Christmas Eve uh, through to sort of Sevens Day or the day after but um, we haven't felt a- any any of that yet it's still very full um so there's uh, you know we've certainly got 100% occupancy at the moment in the hospital and we still have uh, you know obviously a lot of uh, covid patients in. i think we've 24 uh, patients in at the moment who are currently positive for covid
4: and, and uh, doctor, are you seeing more vaccinated or unvaccinated or is it both?
3: Um, so I think there's been a trend towards there being slightly higher proportion of the patients that have COVID now that are vaccinated. Uh, I think that's to be expected when you see what proportion of, um, you know, adults in, in the country have been vaccinated. And, you know, you've got to imagine that a large proportion of the people who have remained unvaccinated have had COVID at this stage. So it's more, but still more than a third of our inpatients at the moment are unvaccinated of the COVID positive fund.
4: And of course, we're hearing this morning that uh, Dublin, Louth and Westmead have the highest rates of COVID-19 in the country. But Drogheda itself had huge rates uh, coming up to sort of the end of November, beginning of December and that kind of dropped off. Um, what's it like now in terms of Louth?
3: Um, well, it's in terms of in the hospital, it's, it seems to have, uh, following on from that, those weeks were quite busy it seems to have slowly tapered off Um, so we're still when we were getting maybe four or five people admitted each day at that point we're maybe getting um, two to three people in uh, each day now so it seems and what we're finding is probably slightly more of the patients that are in with COVID at the moment are actually you know we're picking up more patients who've come in with something else and we screen them all when they're admitted and they have a positive COVID test um so it, it's maybe less patients uh proportionally that are, are sick with their covid there's certainly of those 24 there's probably four of them who maybe are in hospital for different uh reasons to their covid whereas previously anyone who'd come in with covid positive had some illness related to covid
4: and what about the icu numbers doctor
3: so there's five people in ICU at the moment with COVID, which has a big impact on the way we run our ICU in terms of trying to maintain, um, you know, a safe area for people who need ICU care who don't have COVID. So it still means we, we're in a surge situation and we've just split our, our ICU is split into two locations, uh, which has a big impact on the, the staff in um, the uh, you know, to staff two areas with with ICU nurses and ICU doctors um, is much more challenging, obviously, than having all the patients together in the one location.
4: And overall, though, across the country, the numbers are dropping. Um, and, you know, I suppose people are concerned that we're bracing ourselves for, as, as Paul Reid said, you know, a very difficult time in January. But yet the numbers aren't reflecting it across the board. So are we causing panic here or are we just being safe?
3: But I think we're trying to be safe. And I think one big problem we're going to have is related to staffing areas. So obviously, this Omicron variant appears to be very transmissible. And so we expect that we're likely to have outbreaks among staff um, despite despite vaccination. And so that poses a huge challenge to the running of the hospital, particularly, you know, if you have an outbreak... uh, in a in a group of staff that are all providing the same you know a, a crucial service um and you know nursing staff on, on wards uh and potentially leading to bed closures um or uh staff where the you know specific staff that we have fewer of uh, especially say like our you know if we had an outbreak in the occupational uh therapy department for example um then and we we didn't have any occupational therapists. That would have an impact on, on how the hospital runs. Wouldn't be able to provide that service for patients. It would lead to delayed stays in hospital, and uh, all the downsides associated with that.
4: And how is morale among staff coming up to Christmas and with the Omicron variant?
3: Um, I think, you know, as I'm sure you can imagine, people are, you know, really fatigued and tired, um, and really didn't want to hear about another um, variant. Uh, of, Four or five weeks ago that was going to cause problems like this so uh, you know i think there's some nervousness and uh and just very tired um i think everyone's very tired i think everyone needs a break
4: because we when we when we did speak to you um the last time uh it was something like 80 frontline staff uh were out on covid related leave and uh, that was a massive strain
3: yeah yeah so today we have 100 people out um on covid related leave a lot of that is, are you know might be household contacts um and we know that um, that because omicron is so transmissible and we're seeing a higher proportion of people who have had either had covid in the past or been vaccinated um having positive PCR swabs as household contacts um it's it's really important that they stay uh, out of work um and protect the rest of the staff and the patients here but it has an impact on, on trying to deliver service within the hospital.
4: So while Omicron is is spreading and it's highly transmissible, it's not as severe, they say, as, you know, Delta. Um, so, you know, I suppose with something like that, uh, you might have the, the numbers of people coming in, but you're not expecting them to be as sick?
3: Well, I guess we don't know entirely yet. Uh, you know, what we expect is that it will be, uh, it will make a, a proportion of people very sick and if the numbers of cases in the community become very high even though if that's a lower proportion of the people who are infected that get very sick and need ICU or hospital admission it'll still be more patients um and i guess you know we're worried about the the possibility of people acquiring the omicron variant within the hospital and doing everything we can to to avoid that including like like i say ensuring that staff who are household contacts uh, stay out of the hospital and so I think uh, more nervous about uh, the impact on staff and if the numbers in the community you know if we have tens of thousands of people positive every day well then certainly we will have um, be back in a situation where there are hundreds of people in, in hospital and potentially hundreds of people in intensive care
4: and it it really is moving though at a rapid rate, isn't it? I mean, the figures are are, are shocking. It's just gone from naught to sixty six percent in what a week or two.
3: It's alarming. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's really alarming how quickly the. It's, it, it seems difficult to believe how um, the proportion of cases that are related to the omicron variants can can rise so rapidly. Yeah, I'd agree.
4: There's also the fears, uh, Dr. Cunahan, uh, with this Omicron variant, that more patients are admitted to hospital for non-COVID conditions will then are going to be at risk of picking up the virus. Is that a concern for, for staff at the hospital? Uh,
3: well, it's a concern for staff and yeah, um, uh, and the hospital. Uh, and uh, from a management point of view, we obviously don't want <coughs> patients acquiring COVID and we want people to feel safe to come into hospital because there's still... Uh, you know, a biggish proportion of people in the community who are incredibly frightened of coming into hospital. And so we, you know, do have strategies in place to um, avoid avoid that in terms of obviously having our COVID patients um, separated and isolated. We've a, 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 another pathway for our patients who we are suspicious of having COVID but don't uh, have a positive test. And then everyone who's admitted to the hospital who's is, is an overnight Stay or is going to have an overnight stay has has a COVID swab, um, and we 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 generally repeat that um, a couple of days later in case they were incubating COVID uh, at the time that they arrived in.
4: And then you know the, there's also the fear that uh, you know that you're you're afraid to go into hospital if you are sick. So there are people who are sick and then they're still avoiding the hospital. That is that avoidance kind of phobia is still there.
3: Yeah, that's a worry, and that's why we're you know we want to you know, reassure people that we are going to all efforts um, to try and uh, prevent uh, anyone acquiring COVID within within the hospital. I, I think it's very difficult to guarantee that that, you know, will never happen again. Um, be, but, but we're doing everything that we can to, to avoid it.
4: I think as well, one of the, the big issues as well is, you know, young people still aren't fully vaccinated. One in every six young adults. So Neffet are saying they either haven't come forward for vaccination or uh, they've only received one dose. But yet, the young people are, you know, generally less likely to be... No, I'm not saying they, they can I'm not a doctor. I'm not saying that they can't be very sick uh, with COVID-19, but they are less likely in terms of their ages of being um, gravely ill with COVID. But again, what message would you give to, to young people, I suppose young and old, to, to be vaccinated?
3: I think... Uh since the vaccination has come in, what we've seen is that the, the ages of people in intensive care is going down. Uh, and that's because uh, there are, uh, you know, these younger people who are less likely to be vaccinated. So I think, you know, if you'd asked me what the age of people in intensive care was before we had vaccinations, it was generally people in their 60s. Um, and then in uh, when things took off earlier this autumn, um, people in ICU where everyone had had a good opportunity to get vaccinated people were generally around about 50 and these were people without medical problems because the people who were 50 and had medical comorbidities uh, were generally vaccinated so these were well people in around the age of 50 and um, last week we had two people in intensive care with with covid pneumonia who were in their 30s so and and they were not people who had you know particu- were particularly vulnerable so the reality is um, a small proportion of people um, who are young and healthy will get very sick with COVID and um, the higher the number of cases there are in the community the more likely there will be some of those individuals that end up in our ICU so it's really important um, to get vaccinated and um, there are also people in our community who unfortunately um, will not have a good immune response to a vaccine uh, and uh, you know I meet a lot of those patients, and they come into the. They they get admitted as well, and um, they're acutely aware of it. They're very aware that they're vulnerable, that they have are unlikely mm-hmm. to have developed an immune response to the vaccine they've had, all their doses of the vaccine. But they know they're at high risk of becoming sick, and so for the protection of those patients, uh, I think it's incredibly important that everyone um, uh, get, gets vaccinated as well
4: and the boosters as well i suppose i think a lot of people though around loud and mead will be up in arms about you know the difficulties of trying to access the booster and vaccine but i suppose patience is the key isn't it because we're still we are still learning
3: we're still learning and um i think you know there's there's been a lot of um progress uh made in terms of the 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 amount of vaccination doses uh we've been able to give nationally certainly um, you know yesterday we broke another record in terms of number of vaccine doses given in a day um, and I know that uh, vaccinations are going on um, certainly at least until friday um, I haven't heard any news about uh, Christmas day and season's day, but certainly this uh vaccinations uh, happening uh you know today tomorrow, Friday.
4: Well, I do think that's an absolutely incredible uh, thing that we've 186,000 vaccines in two days. So 1.7 million boosters and third doses have been administered so far, um, which is which really is incredible.
3: Yeah, it's very impressive. So it's yeah. absolutely encourage um, everyone to, um, to to go out and uh, register for their booster vaccination if they're due it. And also to be aware of the new information uh, yesterday in terms of patients who've had COVID now um, they can have a booster vaccination uh, three months after their COVID infection, when up until yesterday it had been recommended to wait for six months. So that's another, uh, you know, large group of people that will be able to have their booster vaccination sooner.
4: Great stuff, Dr. Ian Coonan. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Michael Reed Show on LMFM. Alison O'Reilly on LMFM. Welcome back, I'm Alison O'Reilly and I'm standing in for Michael Reid for a couple of days. Keep the text coming in, you can text or WhatsApp us on 086 1800 658 and just before the break we were speaking to Dr Ian Cunahan who's the Respiratory Consultant Clinical Director for the Department of Medicine and COVID Lead at Our Lady of Lords Hospital and incredible news there that 186,000 vaccines have been given out in two days. Uh, Remarkable work uh, across the board. But uh, staying with COVID and the government announced supports for businesses yesterday in the wake of the new restrictions and joining us on the line now to tell us more is Labour's spokesperson on finance, public spending and reform, Jed Nash. How are you Jed?
5: Very well, thanks. Good to speak to you this morning Alison.
4: Uh, it's quite a complicated story now with, it, with businesses and the, I suppose the, the chopping and changing and, 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 and obviously rolling out the restrictions first and then telling us what supports are available next. So just give us a brief rundown of what happened yesterday.
5: Yeah, I think there are um, <clears throat> three or four interventions made by government yesterday that are really positive. Uh, we have the existing schemes in place, the CRSS uh, and the EWSS, and there's really a tax warehousing scheme, so where certain businesses don't have to uh, pay tax at this point. They can pay the uh, tax generated over the last uh, year, year and a half uh, at, at a later date. And there's also the commercial uh, rates uh, extension. So. Um, Firms who will have to pay rates, firms operating out of premises, and like Cedral, Dundalk, RD, later in Bettystown, and so on, will pay rates to their local authority every year. And for certain businesses now, uh, there, there is a rates relief program in place for a period of time, extended now into um, the spring of next year to take account of. The new restrictions that uh, are in place so these are all really really positive supports and just to put this in context um for you allison 6.6 billion euros has been paid out to firms through the two way subsidy schemes since march 2020 they've been really really effective particularly in the hospitality sector uh very very effective indeed in supporting um firms to make sure that uh, they don't have to make people unemployed, that they can keep uh, workers close to the firm at this really, really difficult time. So a couple of key changes that were brought in yesterday uh, include the fact that if you have signed off, if your firm has signed off from EWSS and you, know, you weren't anticipating any restrictions being introduced um, over the last while. Now that restrictions are in place, the government has decided to reopen that scheme to firms that uh, decided to exit it uh, maybe recently so they, they can do that over the next few weeks and make sure that they get help to pay the staff wages. And one of the crucial changes that w- was made was to the uh, CRSS. Now, That scheme pays firms up to €5,000 a week to cover fixed costs. Now, it used to be only available to firms that had to close as a result of uh, lockdowns, for example. Uh, But now uh, you can uh, earn... Uh, up to 40% of what your turnover was in December 2019 and January 2020. It used to be 25%. And the reason why that was brought in, and I actually lobbied for this myself last week, was to take account of kind of businesses that might, for example, usually only open at 5 o'clock and then trade till 12 or 1 in the morning. Um, they will be allowed to do so uh, within certain thresholds. Um, you know, to open up at that point and close at the appointed time under the restrictions that we have now, eight o'clock. Uh, and once they meet certain thresholds, then they will qualify for uh, certain payments through the CRSS. So, all told, uh, the restriction or the, um, extended supports brought in yesterday the vice supports are really good but the problem that i have about this Alison, is this that you know the announcement was made on friday uh, that uh, businesses were to be restricted in terms of opening hours so that's impacted on bars on restaurants uh, on uh, entertainment venues but they had to wait five days to see what kind of extended supports might be available i'm aware of businesses for example that would only open at five o'clock uh, that have des- decided on Saturday that they were going to close for the Christmas period because they were uncertain as to what supports might be made available, and the kind of supports that were uh, announced yesterday, would have actually enabled some firms to uh, to stay open uh, over the uh, restrict over the period uh, when you know these new restrictions are, are are being experienced. So, what I'm saying to government is be much clearer about what the um, supports are, 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 what what support place. Uh, and now to be announcing new restrictions, and let's hope that that's not the case. Then be very clear uh, in parallel when you're, you know when you're announcing those restrictions, make sure that it's coming down the line and what supports are available. And that's why we've been saying for quite a long time now, the subsidy scheme needs to be embedded into the economy. There's a scheme in place in Germany since the last recession that managed to save millions of jobs. Uh, during the, the Great Recession in the late uh, 2000s into the early 2010s. And that scheme is a permanent wage subsidy scheme with conditions attached to make sure that, you know, when different economic sectors are experiencing problems, that the government does, doesn't have to go back to the drawing board all the time and, you know, amend these schemes so people know, look, if our if our sector, if it's the hospitality sector, if it's the entertainment sector, if it's the recreation sector, if there's a particular Difficulty then they'll be able to draw down supports uh, with, with conditions, and th- some of those conditions would, for example, involve no layoffs. And we've been very clear that there should be no layoffs uh, uh, where firms are um, getting you know massive government and, subsidies. And I think that's one uh, of no, the big no issues. Uh, that's,
4: that's one of the big mm-hmm. issues, isn't it? I mean, the support should be used to keep businesses open, um, but also to keep people in their jobs, and that really should be the core of it. Mm-hmm. Have I lost you.
5: Well, that's the point. I mean, you know, day one, you hear me okay, Alison. The, the signal seems to be coming and going yeah,
4: a little. You're
5: okay, go ahead. Great. We've been arguing for day one for strict conditions to be attached to these massive subsidies. As I said at the outset, 6.6 billion euro of taxpayers' money and borrowed money, remember, as well, has been uh, funneled into businesses to keep businesses open and keep people in work. And um, so there really shouldn't be any reason why. Uh, you know if businesses are viable and can stay open through supports no reason why people should be laid off and, and necessarily be going on the pup certainly nine times out of ten that should should not be the case there may be different circumstances that would, would demand that people you know have no other option other than to go on the pup but it is important that there are conditions attached to these large bailouts yeah and i was arguing last week as i have since march 2020 that you know big companies that have been caught paying out dividends now to shareholders, very profitable companies would have been benefiting the wage subsidy scheme, that should not have been the case. The government allowed that to happen. So in any amended schemes into the future, those lessons need to be learned.
4: But also, you know, continuing to pay to these supports, and you're always going to hear this debate: we need to open up, we need to live with COVID, so the economy can keep running. Do you think we're getting the right balance there at all? I mean, are we to lockdowns, restrictions, back open, more funding, and then you find the big companies, as you said, they're they're giving their dividends to their shareholders, um, and that's you know that's not that's not fair. So what what how how do we get this balance right? I
5: bringing in the kind of scheme that we've been arguing for for quite some time, German short-time working scheme model where, for example, trade unions and employers come together to devise uh, a scheme that might be, um, uh, uh, you know, been customised to meet the demands of a particular economic sector. There's oversight there as well, which would mean that, um, you know, when people aren't working and they're receiving these subsidies, that people, when they're not working, would go uh, into training schemes, for example, to... Uh, enabled. There would be thing you know, uh, conditions attached like no layoffs and no dividends will be paid there to shareholders uh, when wage subsidies are being depended on by those kind of companies. So, you know, the, the, the thinking here needs to evolve. These systems are in place now almost two years uh, and there's been very little uh, learning, I think, being applied. But Jed, we're
4: still in unknown territory. Like, we really mm-hmm. are. Like, we weren't we expecting the Omicron uh, variant to arrive and it to be as transmissible as it is. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I just don't know how we can get it right and get the balance right. You know, again, we're still finding our feet
5: yeah no we're dealing with a, an unknown enemy here uh, and i listen with interest to, to what dr ian cunahan um was saying about the you know transmissibility of 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 this um this virus so um you know i i have some sympathy um, for government in terms of uh, how to deal with this and, and we're trying as a, an opposition party to be to be constructive um about this uh, and, and to accept the public health advice by some but at the same time, being constructively critical sometimes about the way in which government uh, handle these kinds uh, of issues. I mean, the wage subsidy scheme, the CRSS, have been you know, monumentally successful in terms of um, you, you know meeting demands that were there, keeping people in work, making sure that business, viable businesses could continue to be viable during this unprecedented um, challenge. and challenge. And really, the focus now is about keeping our health service safe, making sure that our health service is not overrun. And that's really what's driving. Um, the new restrictions, uh, restrictions that will, you know, seek to, I guess, reduce um, social contact over a period of time because we're, this is a really unknown situation is, that we're in at the moment. We do know that the, you know, the boosters have been rolled out mm. at a rapid rate, and that's really, really good. No credit to HSC workers in, in, in that regard. Uh, we would, of course, like to see yeah. the community vaccination centre here in Drogheda is yeah, good. Well, though that there be, our that, GPs and pharmacies are that
4: is a massive issue. It is a
5: huge issue yeah. in, in this area. and has been from from from, from the get go. You know, and we won't have a successful vaccination rollout program if mm. we don't make sure that all our major population centres are covered. That being said, the rollout program. Program has been absolutely exceptional, especially over the last few days, and all credit to, to um, HRC staff. But this at the moment is, you know, we're in a very acute situation here. Uh, Dr. Coonan outlined the stresses and strains in Our Lady Lord's Hospital. Yeah. It's at maximum capacity bed wise at the moment. We need to be very, very careful. And my advice to people listening this morning is it is really difficult at the moment, particularly for young people, particularly at this time of the year. But be as safe as you okay. possibly can. Uh, keep yourself safe, keep your yeah. family safe. And keep our health service uh,
4: safe. Great stuff, Jed. Thanks very much for joining us on the show. That's Labour spokesperson on finance, public spending and reform, Jed Nash. And don't forget, coming up here on uh, the Michael Reed Show, we'll be talking to Paul Cribben of the uh, Vitners Federation uh, later on in the show. We'll take a break. Alison O'Reilly on LMFM. Alison O'Reilly on LMFM. Welcome back. The text number, as always, is 086-180-658. Now, most people are looking forward to Christmas, but it can be a great deal of stress for people where domestic violence and abuse is a huge factor in the home. Joining us on the line now is the CEO of Women's Aid, Sarah Benson. Sarah, how are you? Hi, good morning. Good morning to your listeners, Alison. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, this can be the worst time of year. People just walking on eggshells.
6: It can be a very pressured time of year because, as you mentioned, you know there's huge expectation. There, there, you know, for for many, it's it, for most. I, I think it's, it can be a time of celebration, coming together for family. Obviously, not for everybody, for many different reasons. But where there's domestic violence and abuse in a home, or even where it's persisting after a relationship has ended, particularly where there's children in common, it can be an extremely difficult time for women who are trying to. Keep it together, trying to make sure that everything's organised for Santa, that, you know, um, that that things feel fun and festive. So with the with the pressures of kind of coercive control, um, you know, financial and economic abuse can be very acute at this time of the year because it has a direct impact on kind of ability to, to provide for children, not just in some cases. Kind of gifts and things but even sometimes the basics Um, and as you mentioned that really acute tension walking on eggshells just trying to keep the peace when in fact where there's domestic abuse it's not really possible because when you know somebody is being abused it's not their fault they're not causing it there's a perpetrator there who's really kind of pulling all the strings so in as much as you're trying to keep things together there's only so much control you have. So we, we know that it can be really, really difficult. And we really want to uh, make those suffering aware that, you know, we're all still here all through the holidays. The Women's Aid National Free Fund Helpline is available 24-7 right through Christmas Day and and, and and into the new year. And we also act then as a, an important kind of gateway um to refer onwards then to all of the local services. So obviously, in Blair than Mead, there's our independent colleagues who would be, you know, Drogheda Women's Refuge, the the Women's Refuge, um, Women's Aid Dundalk, and uh, of course the the Navan um, uh, Mead Refuge as well. So, so where things are really acute, it, we I can have, pass people on.
4: And it is, it's but it's a really tough thing to to encourage somebody or to for somebody to make that first step, and they have to make that first step on their own to leave. I think a lot of the questions we always hear is why did they stay so long and why did they put up with it and why can't they leave? I mean questions that you know are just nearly impossible to answer because people forget there's a routine, there's children, there's a lifeline in that violence almost. You know it's, it's, it becomes so complex that you feel you can't go and that you stay and be abused because where else can you go? That's one of the huge issues women who are caught up in this dark world face they're just afraid of their life to leave.
6: Absolutely. And I suppose the the other side of that, Alison, because everything you said is right, is is that the right question, you know, about somebody having to leave when I suppose, you know, uh, subjecting somebody to abuse, to coercive control, uh, choosing to treat your partner in a way that is not respectful, doesn't recognise their equality, doesn't recognise their rights as a human being. Those are choices that uh, abusive people make. And I think, you know, the more pertinent question from from my point of view, it would be, why don't they stop abusing? Why don't they not yeah, abuse? Absolutely and, it, absolutely. and why is it that the person, and indeed if there's children as well, the people who are being abused, why do they have to leave? So, as I say, you know... Um, the, the the national health would discuss all options with women because leaving is a, an extraordinary complex thing. It's a frightening, daunting proposition. If there's children, it's, yeah. it's life upending. Yeah,
4: but also it's the
6: unknown. Subject to uh, well, if you're subject to economic abuse, if somebody else is mm. controlling all the finances, where how do you have the means to go anywhere? So that's where. You know, other options, uh, you know, Refuge provide excellent services, but they're not a solution in and of themselves. We have models that other colleagues are pioneering, like safe home models. But all of those things require a whole wraparound community response that holds perpetrators of abuse to account, but also crucially puts that message out there to somebody who is suffering, who's being subjected. You know, women who are, their every waking moment being controlled Mm. You know, by somebody else, that it's not their fault. uh, They're not causing this. They can't control it, but also that they uh, shouldn't be judged for it, shouldn't be stigmatised. And there still can be, you know, a lot of victim blaming. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is. There is. Yeah. You know. Well, that's you know, that behind closed doors thing kind of still does persist a little. And I think we really need to tackle that and just say, Mm -hmm. well, actually, you know. You know, secrecy and you know, turning turning, you know, blind eye, things like that. That allows and enables abusers yeah. to, to thrive. So we can't be complicit in that.
4: And then when we look at the landmark cases now for coercive control and the cases that are appearing before the courts, I mean some extraordinary people coming forward and and it's not easy to go through the courts. It's not easy to even lift up the phone and ask for help. And that, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you, Sarah. Mm. You have the twenty four seven national free phone um number for Christmas. But why what, what about the people who who don't have the space to make a call? How do you make that call if you're constantly being watched?
6: Well, the first thing I'd say is uh, uh, the the helpline is there not just for when people feel like they're at breaking point, they're in crisis. They're there. We're here also to to just uh, create a safe, confidential space just to start teasing out, even in some cases, in the earlier stages of a relationship where there's things don't feel right, you know, and so. It's a place without judgment um and we know how hard it is to to kind of be the one to to reach out and pick up that phone and Many, many times you know women will phone and they can't even speak they, they it's It's silence you can hear them there you 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 just want to create this encouraging space they may hang up, they may ring back and the the It's almost like, you know, there's a block in their throat and and then suddenly they'll get that first word out, the hello, the, Mm. you know, and very often it's followed by I I don't know why I'm calling Mm. or things like, you know, I'm sure there's other women in much worse situations than me. And then when you give them the space to actually say what is going on and, you know, see that kind of give them that. Um, overarching kind of perspective where they're maybe in a situation where they can't see the wood for the trees. They may in fact be in very, very dangerous situations because physical abuse does not have to be present with coercive control. It's many, many tactics. Um, different ways of, of kind of going at somebody which have the impact of kind of diminishing their self esteem, their confidence, um, isolating them from family and friends, so creating, mm-hmm. you know, a, an environment where they're not even able to to kind of see other normal relationships to compare and go, This isn't right what's going on. Absolutely, so those yeah. lines are really important yeah. because then what can often happen is they may it may crystallise and they may want to connect with our face-to-face services or indeed, as I say, they may wish to reach out to a local service to to kind of explore their options in a bit more detail. And again, the refugees do provide those services as well. You don't have to be seeking to flee home, you know, so we all work very closely together to, you know, It really, we would say that women know their own once they've been given the opportunity. Oh, they certainly do, yeah. They know what's right for them and we want to be a part of helping them achieve that.
4: Absolutely, Sarah. Well, we'll put all your details on our podcast later. Thanks very much for joining us here on LMFM. That's Sarah Benson there, the CEO of Women's Aid. We'll take a break. Alison O'Reilly on LMFM Welcome back to the Michael Reid show I'm Alison O'Reilly filling in for, him for a couple of days do get in touch with us the email address here is at info at lmfm.ie that's info at lmfm.ie or you can text or WhatsApp us on 086 1800 658 and still to come on the show we'll be looking at the homeless situation across the country 3,000 people were photographed queuing up for food yesterday in Dublin uh, and in it's a, a shocking sight those images um, on the 15th of December 1947 16 year old Jimmy O'Neill disappeared from his family home in Waterford making him one of Ireland's longest missing children and Christmas is a very difficult time for his only surviving sibling Frank O'Neill and of course we'd be looking at the 16,000 children who are waiting for basic dental care in Meath new figures have shown us now many issues and concerns for older people have come to the fore as we're facing a rising prices in energy bills, fuels, and a lot more. Alone, the charity that works with older people says the state pension is now just not enough to make ends meet for the older community. And I spoke to the charity's CEO, Sean Moynihan, earlier on, and and I began by asking him about the challenges the older community are facing.
7: Well, look, we all know there's challenges for everybody this winter, you know, whether it's uh, inflation costs, but also navigating COVID. And for some older people, that's a very challenging time. Uh, We've got the shorter days. And then for us, in partnership with Irish Rural Link, we'll deliver nearly a 1,000 Christmas dinners on Christmas Day to bring people not only the food and nutrition they need, but also to bring them some company uh, at uh, at this difficult time.
4: Now, I suppose one of the major issues at the moment, Sean, is the rise in the prices of fuel and energy with energy suppliers putting prices up. That will be hitting older people in particular and the vulnerable very hard in the pocket, particularly this time of year.
7: Absolutely. Those on fixed incomes like pensioners, as I really can imagine, is is these increases in, 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 in fuel he really hits, hits people right in the pocket. And when those bills arrive in January, we're going to have to have initiatives and supports there for people. I think what people don't realize is that older people must prioritize our heating. And we'd ask all older people to do that, especially if we get a cold snap. Because for older people, heating is a public health issue, especially with those who are over 75, Or who maybe have some frailty or other other health issues.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
7: because ultimately is is that's what will keep them safe and well.
4: And the state pension, Sean, is that enough to make ends meet in the older community?
7: Well, these increasing rises, it's getting really extremely difficult. In the in the budget, we you know, the the pension unfortunately is below the poverty line. So ultimately is, is with the increases in the budget, we were looking for around ten euros, we got five. We're looking for uh, increase, a bigger increase in the um, in the fuel allowance. Uh, ultimately, is is we've got to put a floor under those that are most vulnerable to these, these these increases, while supporting the rest of the community. So the reality is is older people, some older people, will be left with difficult choices this year, difficult choices about how they spend their money, how they how, how they prioritise and how they keep themselves safe and well.
4: And with all of that stress and strain, Sean, they're also in the middle of a pandemic.
7: Well, that's it. There's an awful lot of fear around, you know, we're, we're now with Omicron, we're in the next wet, wet wave of this and older people have been wonderful at navigating uh, through, through the pandemic with the support of their friends, families and communities and making good decisions. But unfortunately some of those decisions are quite challenging because it might mean, you know, cutting the contact, seeing less family, seeing less friends and that obviously has an impact and brings uh, wider rates and bigger rates of loneliness, anxiety and some mental health issues.
4: And you mentioned there the people who have family and friends around them. Well, there's an awful lot of people who are on their own at Christmas.
7: Absolutely. Uh, Unfortunately, I suppose if you're on your own or you're struggling with loneliness, Christmas unfortunately really brings it home because I suppose all the imagery, all the stories are always about family and travel and people getting together. So ultimately it brings that home. But loneliness is an issue that affects a lot of older people, around one in ten, all year round. And I think the great thing about loneliness, it is something we can do something about. We encourage all older people to reach out. But we also encourage all the community, family, friends, neighbours to reach in. Every great relationship starts with hello and really ultimately is, is we want to give people the company and the support that they they need to age in our communities and live in our communities and thrive in our communities where we want them to be.
4: And yourself, Sean, what can you offer older people around this time of year?
7: For us, we're, we're here all year round, so... Um, people can reach us seven days a week. Christmas Day, every 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. We we don't close 365. So ultimately, it is we've phone lines people can ring and we back up services for people as well. So if people do need support, we can work with them to get that support or to provide that support that they need. Sometimes that may be just reassurance. Some of that might just you know might just be uh, public health information. In other cases, it's more complex around support, housing, health you know, managing all of these things and combating loneliness and we support them then ongoing. But we're here to help any older person who who's struggling or ultimately needs any help or advice this Christmas.
4: And just call out your number, Sean, if you have it handy. 08,
7: 0818 222 024.
4: Thanks very much, Sean Moynihan, CEO of the charity Alone. Thanks very much for joining us here on LMFM. Every great Thank relationship you. starts with hello. I love that. It's a really powerful line. Every great relationship starts with hello. And that was uh, Sean Moynihan, the CEO of Alone, the charity that works with older people. And uh, some very powerful points there, of course, because um, a lot of people are alone at Christmas and uh, it's it's up to us as a community to keep an eye out for the others. Now, you're listening to the Michael Reed show here on LMFM and our text, our WhatsApp number is 086 658. I have a couple of texts here I'll read out. Jim from Drogheda says it's very scary how quickly this Omicron variant is spreading and I think the government is right to be as cautious as possible I have got my booster and I will be limiting all my contacts as I think that is the only way to stay safe and protect myself we all have a personal responsibility I fully agree with you there Jim we all have to play our part as well it's very easy to blame the government for everything and while uh, they don't always get it right we are still in unknown uh, territory here a text on domestic abuse because we were speaking to Sarah Benson who the CEO of Women's Aid earlier um, about Christmas being such a dark time for people caught up in abusive situations and Deirdre phoned in to say... um, she has a friend who suffered at the hands of her husband for years. It was both mental and physical torture and it took her a long time to pluck up the courage to leave. But when we, when she finally did, she's never looked back. Nobody should put up with abuse in the home, woman or man. Fully agree with you there, Deirdre. And I think as well, Sarah made a really good point. We have to change our language on how we uh, look at uh, these situations. Um, why should the person who's being abused leave? It's their home too. And it is a very, very difficult thing to do to have to change your whole life change everything Um you know why is the person abusing them is the questions we need to start asking as well um, Seamus and the doc says so much talk about the Omicron variant and the worry over it but if they are fearing the worst why not close down altogether and be done with it um, I wish it was as easy as that, Seamus. We're still, as I said, finding our way around in the dark. Uh, a new strain of of the virus, obviously, sweeping through the country at a rapid rate, and uh, so many people losing their jobs, are still trying to find the right balance of what to do here. And in terms of pubs and the restrictions, Siobhan from Trim can't get over the decision to close pubs early when the numbers in our hospitals are dropping. What difference is that going to make? Closing at eight p.m. What are people doing? That they're just going out early so really you are not stopping people from mixing I feel very sorry for those in the hospitality sector I do as well Siobhan it uh, employs more than 200,000 people and uh, my god they've taken a hammering we all have but I mean a lot of people are out of work at uh, Christmas and it's very very difficult uh, so keep the text coming in to us here on the Michael Reed show 086 658 uh, we're going to take a break but we'll be speaking to the sibling of one of Ireland's longest missing children when we come back Alison O'Reilly on LMFM. Welcome back. The text number again is 086 658. and you can WhatsApp as well of course when it's safe to do so and you can email us at info at lmfm.ie uh, Still to come on the show we'll have Porter Cribben on the Chief Executive of the Vintners Federation of Ireland to talk to us about the impact of all the restrictions on Covid on the hospitality sector which employs more than 200,000 people a year uh, Unbelievable uh, what's happened in the hospitality sector and uh, so many people out of work for Christmas. Uh, More than 16,000 children are waiting for basic dental care in Meath, new figures released to Ain't Who's Emer Tobin show and uh, that's all coming up a little bit later on but this time 74 years ago a family in Waterford were left grief stricken after their eldest boy Jimmy O'Neill vanished at just 16 years of age without a trace. And uh, Frank O'Neill, his only surviving sibling, is joining us on the line now. Frank, how are you?
1: Yes, good morning to you, Alison. Good morning.
4: Thank you for joining us here on LMFM.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Frank, Thank you for inviting me on.
4: You're Thank very you. welcome. Frank, you were only four. You were the youngest when your brother went missing. And I suppose growing up then, it would have been in the shadow of absolute despair.
1: Well, you had that Yeah, that from I uh, was—you could say—an infant, only beginning to start going to school, and you were looking for uh, the the a brother which was never there for you. And you have no direct memories as such, and it it was a harrowing experience because I've endured all that all my life. Uh, I'm a single person, and uh, the thing about it is, you're you're reflecting, you're trying to bring into perspective all the years that have gone, all the decades. Now it's 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 two it's two thirds of uh, or three quarters of a uh, of a century, uh, nearly seventy five years, and it's quite. It's it's really terrible because when weather's change, it's it's more reflective. You're thinking of a 16-year-old going in bad weather, missing from home. Where does he go? Who's protecting him or who helped him? I'm only uh, surmising, assuming that he went on a on a, on a ship because he worked in employment in Watford. Uh, Watford. Mere, mostly probably a, a general worker and as an operative and more or less maybe a messenger. There wasn't too much jobs available, I'm sure, at that time for those that would be in that category, in age bracket. So all those things, I had a uh, complete, I can, you can never get it out of your mind with what your mother and father suffered. And it was, it was, uh, it was detrimental to both of their health. Jimmy was gone uh, when my father died. Jimmy was gone 19 years, and when my mother died, Jimmy was gone 25 years. And those were always years, years, years of literally upset and a harrowing experience, even for myself. I don't know how I survived, say, in school because you could have undertaken what there was no drugs at that time, but you could be suicidal attempts would come in. Uh, basically speaking, I was always involved in hurling. Maybe that was the aspect that kept me going. Other than that, it was just a complete nightmare. And then, to be quite honest with you, Christmas time uh, bears nothing to me because uh, Jimmy went missing uh, 10 days before Christmas. My father died before Christmas. My mother went into hospital on a Christmas Eve and said she won't be back anymore and died in February. And my sister died on Christmas morning.
2: It's
4: shocking.
1: So, so it quite, it's, it's quite a harrowing experience mm-hmm. for a youngster, for the youngest person. I never grew up with any of my family. This is where you're missing. Mm-hmm. You're missing. You can't, you can't converse with anyone anymore. They're mm-hmm. all gone.
4: And even I, and even the questions that you still have, because you're always questioning yourself when somebody goes missing, um, you you've nobody to ask because the people who were there at the yep, time are yep, gone. Just yep. talk us through what you know happened. So so Jimmy was sixteen. He was the yep. eldest boy, and he was working. Oh, Clyde. he was the second
1: second Jack eldest. My eldest brother was Jack, mm-hmm. and then you had Nancy, and then you had Jimmy. And had a brother died at six weeks old, and there was two miscarriages by my mother, and I was the last of seven. But Jimmy went missing on on the 16th. He went to work, uh, and apparently Monday was a half day, and he never returned home. Now, having said that, uh, returning home for a half day, obviously he had a couple of hours. I feel that the ships at that time went out on the tide. And that'd be about six thirty in, in six thirty p.m. So when when everything became uh, the lights, the alarm bells, and that you could say if Jimmy the ship was going apparently to Liverpool, and if Jimmy had had uh, had stowed away, he had to have help because if he did. Uh, reach Liverpool. I'm only assuming those things. I'm always thinking. I'm asking myself so much questions. But if he did arrive in Liverpool, he had to have someone to guide him, to bring him ten days before Christmas. This would be even nine days before Christmas. So where did he go from there? And and uh, we never got we never, which I can say truthfully down through the years, birthdays or anything like that. We never got an inkling. No never got a, a breakthrough.
4: There is there is one tiny record, but again, you still can't confirm mm. if it's Jimmy, that there's a ship um, log with a James M. O'Neill on it and your brother was James Malachy O'Neill. That's, That's right. the only record and the age of that boy...
1: Coincides everything. Yeah,
4: coincides. That's yeah. the only kind of
1: breakthrough that I had, mm. thought I had it mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, thought I said, this is it, and my sister was in America for nearly 40 years, mm-hmm. and she, she followed up, and there was never any, there was never an input or any advancement in in undertaking to get to find out if he's dead or alive. Now I don't know. I had an incident this year at the Holy Souls in November. You were submitting your, your, your Jews to the to the church and I had inadvertently put down Jimmy's name in the list of the dead and I quest I said to the priest, Oh my God, I said, I'm after putting my brother's name. I said, I don't know whether he's dead or alive I mm-hmm. said Well he said, Leave it there. So that was the thing. Yeah. That was the first default I had in my own time.
4: But it's, it's, I mean, I can't even imagine how you feel, Frank. But I mean, something, something must have happened for him to have stowed away. And I'm sure you've asked yourself, you've lay awake at night asking yeah, yourself these yeah, things. Yeah. There could have been a row. Yeah. He could have, God only knows, but there could have been, something must have happened for him to go to all that effort to run away. And I'm sure that's the sort of thing that keeps you awake at night.
1: Well, that's the thing repeatedly. And, and the thing about it is you come to the situation where you ask yourself so many questions and I mean to say the population wouldn't be that exorbitant in, in Waterford in 1947 but the whole thing about it is there's always question marks that, that I can never have an answers. I can never have any answers. I have done everything possible in relation to trying on earth uh, to see if I could at Salvation Army, you name it and there was lots of people yeah. that I won't like to mention because i might Mm. exclude some people i know but they were so helpful to me to train in advance this is a non-going thing Mm. that i'd love to get some little now the way i look at it even this morning in waterford it's absolutely teeming. i was at half seven mass and the first thing i'd always do excuse me is pray for my brother yeah that god would give me some some little leeway That's all I'm relying on is Mm. prayer and hope. Yeah. I can't give up hope. I no, can't give up Frank, because hope, if I give up, hope is a great up, thing. Take
4: it away, yeah, hope is a great thing. We're speaking to Frank O'Neill, whose brother Jimmy went missing in 1947, age 16, and uh, Frank was the youngest at the time, and he's missing 74 years. And Frank, you've done everything: Ancestry DNA, everything you've hired a DNA everything. expert, you've yep. you've a genealogy expert, you've been yep. onto the to the American police, the UK police, think. the yep. Irish police. I mean, there's no, you've left no stone unturned. No. But but there is a couple of memories that you have as well of a woman coming to the house telling your mother Jimmy's okay.
1: Yeah. There was a lady came and said to my mother "Uh, Jimmy is grand and my mother because years after you'd be always thinking and my mother said will you take a, a car to him I can't I get the other woman into trouble. So there was a hidden agenda there at my mother's time, and my mother is dead since 1974. My father died in 1966. So the whole thing there is I can't have any advancements. I don't know where this lady, they're all well gone now. But the whole thing about it is in order to get advancement, that's why I would, I would appeal to people that have that out there that don't hide anything from those that are missing people no. with people because for the simple reason, you don't know what it's like inside in your system what to have a missing family member. Uh, I can't explain it. I can't explain it. I thank God every day excuse me, for guiding me through life, saving me, which is most important. It could take a split second to, to do away with yourself. But whether whether the, the obvious thing is from the man above to keep me going, yeah. that at the end of the day I might receive something, that I, I die happy.
4: Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right in the point that you made there, Frank, that if you know anything, don't keep it because you're no. compounding people's suffering. No. There you are still appealing for your brother 74 years later. Mm. And it's, it's shocking if anybody knows anything to just, I mean, what did you do wrong? Do you know, regardless yeah, of what happened yeah. with adults or whatever, I don't know yeah. what happened, but you were his baby brother, you know, yeah. and you deserve to know you didn't do anything wrong.
1: I taught myself like that. He might have some little, if he was alive, or if he is alive, mm-hmm. or uh, family members that he'd say, "How did I grow up? What did I attain, yeah. or what did I achieve in life? Did I have sport and?" Uh, backgrounds and things like that. I played mm-hmm. hurling at at a high level too. And I was always happy. And I suppose those are the one things that kept me going. Mm-hmm. I had a cousin. Uh, uh, his name was Tommy Power Clyde. And he was so good to me as a cousin because he was he was a little around Jimmy or a little younger, but he was so good to me. He put me on the road. And this was the thing. I never brought disrespect to my parents because I saw how this suffered.
4: Of course you did, Frank. Well, look, no. thank you so much for sharing such a heartbreaking story. And you're right, Frank, don't give up hope. Hope no. is a great thing. And you have to believe in hope because uh, it'll get you through these very difficult times, yeah. Frank. Never give up because you no. just never know what's around the corner. Thanks very much for sharing your story with us here on yeah, LMFM.
1: opportunity to wish yourself and your listeners out there a happy Christmas, and a peaceful one.
4: Thank you, Frank. And
1: to keep uh, to keep the wolf away from the door. If they have any little bit of information on anyone that's missing mm. or anything like that, family members, it's most important.
4: Absolutely, Frank. Thank you so much for joining us. That's Frank O'Neill uh, speaking about his brother Jimmy, who went missing at Christmas in 1947. We'll take a break. We'll be back after this. Alison O'Reilly on LMFM. Welcome back. The text or WhatsApp us, you can, uh, the number there is 0861800658 or you can email us as well at info at lmfm.ie. Still lots to come on the show. We'll be looking at how 16,000 children are waiting for basic dental care in Mead. But first, shocking images of thousands of, of people queuing for food yesterday in Dublin show how sadly the situation of the homeless crisis is not a thing of the past. And uh, joining us on the line now is Alan Bailey from the Capuchin Centre and you're going to tell us all about the genuine homelessness crisis we have, Alan. How are you?
9: Alison, good morning. How are you?
4: I mean, those images were just shocking.
9: Uh, they were, Alison. And w- w- I personally, I haven't seen them as bad in a long, long time. Mm. I
4: went mean... all
9: the way down the road yesterday morning. And it started at 10 to 5.
4: 10 to 5. And it was everybody, children, adults, older people, everybody?
9: Everybody, yeah.
4: Have you ever... You've never seen anything like that, Alan? N-
9: nothing. Uh, years and years ago, maybe but not for not, not in the recent past anyway.
4: And just tell our listeners the service that you provide.
9: Okay, we're a drop-in centre normally, where we have a breakfast until 11.30am, and dinner then from 1pm until 3pm. And prior to the pandemic, we were catering for somewhere in the region of about 550 dinners a day. Uh, with the pandemic restrictions, we've become a drop-ins or a, a takeaway service only. And our dinners have increased to about 700, 750 every day.
4: And yesterday was for vouchers for for, for, for Chris, food. Yeah,
9: numbers. for Christmas hamper. No, normally we we distribute a Christmas hamper Christmas week. But with the, again, with the restrictions, we couldn't bring 100 people together to pack our bags. So uh, we decided both last year and again this year that we distribute vouchers instead. My goodness. So, so yesterday we gave out done store vouchers to a value of fifty euros each.
4: Wow, and and Alan, is this the fallout of the pandemic with the increase in these numbers?
9: Well, it's 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 everything, I suppose. We've always had a huge number here. Even at the height of the Celtic Tiger, we always had a a kind of a a certain amount of people that were called. We'd have two to three to four hundred dinners most days. But certainly in recent years, where it had levelled off, it's it's has gone bad again. I say a lot of people are finding it difficult just to make that last little bit of ends meet, you know.
4: Yeah, I think that's one of the things a lot of people um, make a mistake about. They think homelessness and it's just think of people living on the street. But this is people who are working, people with a roof over their head. Yeah. But it's it's that stretch, that last stretch, that, isn't that it? That last
9: little bit of, that they need, a little bit of help.
4: And I suppose you're hearing all sorts of stories while people are standing in queues. Or
3: oh,
9: all sorts of stories. Now, and the thing about us here is we don't ask Alison, I mean... If you turn up, you get what you came for, mm. and our ethos is we don't ask questions, so we don't want to know who you are or what your background is, our circumstances. If you're here, we feed you. You can see our doctor. Our like yesterday, we we'll give you your voucher for your Christmas.
4: You never turn anyone away. Never
9: turn anyone away, and thank God we've never been short of anything. And I mean, our, our dinner numbers have have been frightening at times. We hit mm. 921 day.
4: My goodness! But at the
9: same time, we still manage to keep it going.
4: Wow! And uh, you don't uh, charge anybody. You know the way? There's a oh, discount no, no. meals. There's no, there's no No fee. No fee at all.
9: Because we're afraid that by just by telling someone that it's a euro, we're going to frighten that person away. So we just don't charge anyone.
4: Yeah, it's a, it's, it's very distressing. It, and the Captain Centre obviously is uh, made the headlines because the Pope visited there, didn't That's he? Right. When he, yeah,
9: he but three years ago. Yeah, he came in and he we had a. Um, eighty to a hundred of our clients here and he went around individually and spoke to them all and shook hands with them all and yeah. posed the photographs. Well a I mean lovely, it's a lovely moment actually.
4: It's the incredible work that Father Kevin does as well. I mean he's a, he's amazing, isn't
9: he? Absolutely, absolutely mm. he was mm-hmm. here yesterday morning at five o'clock and I went home at six o'clock yesterday evening and he was still here.
4: Yeah. Well and in the middle
9: uh, yesterday then the middle a, a VIP visitor, the T shirt no less dropped in to say hello. Oh
4: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people had plenty to say to him no no
9: no no mm-hmm. people appreciate uh, well you know, exactly yeah. that means a lot to people yeah
4: and everyone's trying to do their best is well.
9: trying to do their best that's it exactly
4: yeah well it's it, it really is incredible work and i think it's a sign of the times as well alan it's it's not just the capuchin center no. it's it's all of the the centers around Drogheda mead and around the rest of the country it,
9: exactly yeah, and it's not just dublin uh, yeah. it's not a, just a dublin problem
4: absolutely yeah, yeah. Well, look, thanks very much for joining us here on LMFM. That's Alan Bailey there from the Capuchin Centre talking about the homeless crisis and those shocking images where 3,000 people were queuing up for food parcels and vouchers yesterday. And I suppose we'll stay with the topic of uh, the COVID restrictions and the impact that it's having on the hospitality sector. Porik Cribben, the chief executive of the Wittners Federation of Ireland, is on the line. Porik, how are you?
8: Uh, probably pretty stressed out. Alison is the answer yeah. to that question, but not nearly as stressed out as our members and the people depending on them for uh, a Christmas. Yeah, uh, I know that we have very serious COVID restrictions in it. Uh, there, you know, effectively our business has been closed for the, uh, are severely restricted right through the month of December, based on the public health advice that has been out there. December is a month where traditionally you pay some of the bills that are overhanging from the bad November and you put a bit aside for the, the bleak months of January, February in this trade, uh, and that's not going to happen this year. So uh, essentially, it's a trade that has been decimated over the last 21 months. Uh, and it's not just the trade itself. You've got to remember that, you know, the staff, there are suppliers, there are suppliers to the suppliers, whether they be farmers. Uh, whether they be meat companies, uh, whether they be drink companies, you have people in the entertainment industry, uh, you have people in the security industry. It, 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 when, when pubs are restricted or closed, it, it's not just the publicans themselves, but it's all of those other industries that are affected.
4: And I mean, the initial time for closure was five and you got it stretched out to eight. But it, as you're saying, it doesn't really make much of a difference.
8: Five or eight is not really. It, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. In a lot of instances, uh, in 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 uh, pubs don't open until five o'clock. If they don't have a a food based offering, many of them won't open until five or six o'clock. Uh, and opening between five and eight, uh, it's 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 not uh, in in any way viable. Quite a lot of them will choose not to open because you know eighty plus percent of the business is done. After eight o'clock in in um, in drink only uh, pubs. And in the context of food pubs, a lot of them will miss their second sitting of an evening. And it just won't be viable. Uh, and they will be forced to, to stay closed.
4: And I think as well, you know, uh, we had Jed Nash on, the Labour's finance spokesperson earlier, and he was welcoming the supports that are there. Your own reaction to them, Pork?
8: Yeah, I mean, we do welcome the supports. Uh, and we have to say that without support over the last 21 months, uh, I think there would be very, very few, if any, businesses available for when Google open. So we absolutely welcome the support. Uh, but I suppose one has to say that people are not in business to depend on support. They're in business to trade. They're in business to build their business. They're in business to give a service to consumers and customers. Uh, and But the support are vital. They're welcome. Uh, obviously, they're never enough. Uh, but in the context of all that uh, has, has happened, you know, we said yesterday that we were appreciative of the support. That's what our members are saying. But they're not a substitute for trading.
4: No, I wouldn't think so. And I mean, you've uh, over 200,000 people in that industry, hospitality, yeah, I mean, in the pubs. Broader, in the
8: broader tourism mm. and hospitality industry, you know, you're looking. You're, you're looking at you know almost uh, one in ten of all jobs in the country. Uh, in specifically in the pub trade, mm. there are fifty thousand direct employees. But then, if you look at the the other areas where people are affected, as I said earlier, around uh, suppliers, around uh, the the entertainment business, you're talking about another you know probably double that if not treble that local. Mm. So it's it's. Uh, when when the trade is hit, there are a lot of other industries
4: hit as well. Right? Well, you know, we do, we do wish you all the best, Porrick, and it is a little bit of a, a glimmer of hope there with the supports being extended. But look, I mean, long may it last, and uh, we wish you all the best. Thanks very much for joining us here on LMFM. That's Porrick Cribbon, the Chief Executive of the Vitners Federation of Ireland. We'll take a break and be back after this. Alison O'Reilly on LMFM. Welcome back. The text number oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. Now, word is reaching us that number 47 medical practice in Fairview in Drogheda uh, is offering a walk-in booster vaccine service today and tomorrow. So I'm joined on the line now by Jill Stout, who's the practice manager. Jill, you're very welcome along to the show. How are you?
10: Thanks, Alison.
4: Yeah, good. Busy but good. I bet. I bet. So it, when did this all start happening and who can avail of it?
10: Uh, so, um, well, anybody can avail of it. Um, obviously, all of our patients um, can avail of it. But anybody over the age of 16, and um, particularly over the age of 30, uh, we're trying to get to as many people as we possibly can. Um, so, yeah, you know, if obviously people's own GPs aren't participating and it's hard for them to get to the National Vaccination centres, mm. because obviously we're conscious that there isn't one in Drada. Yeah, that's so a big that's, issue, isn't
4: it? Yeah, and people are uh, up in arms about that. So you're on 47 Fair Street in Drogheda? Yeah, we're 47 Fair Street, Yeah, In the medical practice there. So uh, why did you decide to do this? Because of that, was it? Just because there's, you know, there's a huge lack there. There's a big hole there.
10: Well, there is. There's a huge space. And also, you know, with the rising numbers over the past few weeks in Drogheda, we're, you know, we're seeing it with our own patients. We're seeing it even with our staff and families and things like that, that there has been a big jump in the COVID cases um, in the area. So obviously once the government asked GPs to to stand up and, and kind of be part of the, the booster campaign and for, spend the next four weeks, so kind of starting last week spend the next four weeks getting as many people boosted as possible, we said
4: let's do as much as we can, yeah. Okay, so you could be open for a few days. More? Well,
10: we're doing today on all day. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're going to take a lunch break. Uh, so we're saying to people not to come past 12.30. Night. And we're back open from 2 to 5. And uh, again, tomorrow, we have people booked in for tomorrow. And mm-hmm. their appointments are secure. Um, and we're doing all afternoon then tomorrow as well from 2. Um, we're not going to be doing Christmas Eve for boosters. But if we have stock left, we will do next Uh, next week the 29th or 30th we'll put it all on our Facebook page
4: Okay, so what do people need to do do they need to bring anything with them
10: they they just need to bring ID and uh, their PPS number it's important they have that and that they haven't had their vaccine it needs to be a three month window since they've had their last vaccine and since last night it's a three month window now since they've had COVID so the government reduced that from six months to three months just last night so we may have turned away one or two people yesterday who had had COVID in the Mm. last six months Mm -hmm. So, if they uh, they are welcome to come back to us
4: great stuff okay thanks very much for coming on the show to tell us about that so people can go to 47 Fair Street at the medical practice there and that's Jill Stout the practice manager Uh, thanks very much for joining us on LMFM now we'll turn to something different we hear a lot about the waiting list for vital operations and treatments however but this is uh, isn't so true when you hear about the dental work for children I know when I was younger you just you know everything was free and you could just walk in and get anything done braces and everything it's actually a basic human right to have um, um, good dental care as a child, uh, but uh, Emer, Aintu's Emer Tobin is on the line now to tell us about the sixteen thousand children who are waiting for dental treatment in Mead. Emer, how are you?
2: I'm good, Alison. Thanks for the opportunity to highlight this really important issue. I suppose dental care is eclipsed by you know other aspects of the healthcare system for the last couple of years, and I do think it's really important because. I'm not a fan of going to the dentist at all. And I just think it's really important for children to start good kind of dental practices from a really young age. And that can only happen in, in collaboration with, you know, um, frequent dental visits and just normalizing the whole thing of going to the dentist for, for routine checkups. Because there's really, really important dental developmental milestones. And if they're not hit at the right, you know, age groups, then it can certainly lead to serious dental problems being stored up in the future.
4: Absolutely. Were you shocked at the figures, Emer? I probably wasn't shocked because I
2: know from having children in the system and talking to uh, staff that the the situation was really, really bad. Certainly prior to COVID, uh, there was difficulties in this area because dental um, it's very hard to recruit dentists. We hear this across the whole healthcare system um, you know that's why the itu bed thing has been so critical in in the last two years
4: and why why is that so difficult to, to to why is it so difficult to get the dentists
2: um it, it has something to do with working in in private dentistry there is, it, 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 it's hard work and um, i suppose the salary might not equate to what one can get in the, in the private sector and um, the terms of conditions there's there's a lot going on it's it's It just seems to be more attractive to work in other areas of dentistry, in in the private industry. But, you know, I don't know if there's something um, going on in different countries, but certainly Mead has has three to four dental positions that have not been filled. Mm. And that has just reduced, um, I won't even say reduced, I mean, this service has really, really stalled in the last few years. Not to mention the fact that, you know, population growth in Mead has been phenomenal between 1996 and 2016. It was a 78% increase in our population. People forget that. And yet mm-hmm. the budgets and the resources has never kept pace. So it, it stands to reason that our services are kind of on the floor um, where, they are, where, where they're currently at. And the problem with this is when you reduce um, dental assessments or, or screening services, the number of emergencies is going to increase. And it has increased. And you know yourself, dental pain is probably one of the source pain that any Adults, never mind a child, can endure. And I just think it's, it's something that, you know, the government has to intervene. HRC has to intervene. They have to say, right, this area needs funding. We have to look at the population size and needs. We have to, to put the the, the the proportionate amount of money and resources. And, and you know, a serious recruitment um, campaign to, to fill all the empty positions.
4: Yeah, well, and it's, a, it's a crisis. Really it's it's a crisis, Emer.
2: It is. And that's even before we talk about COVID, we're talking about the whole redeployment Mm. of much of the staff's COVID related um, duties. And that, again, you know, look, I'm not trying to minimise the importance of, of, of what's going on there. But no, but with, with dental, dental care though, yeah. I do.
4: I, I there was a massive issue with trying to get a dentist in the first lockdown, and as you quite rightly said, dental care is so important to get children used to it at a young age. I mean, I have a massive pain threshold when it comes to teeth because mm-hmm. my mother never had us out of the dentist, and there was great resources. But that, I'm talking forty years ago. Um, but yeah. it is really important, and I still. I mean, you adopt it yourself. I've always looked after my teeth because of mm-hmm. that childhood grounding of of going to the dentist. And we had a seriously wicked dentist, you know, the public health But it was really important to do it and to get children used to being in the dental chair.
2: But it's like any type of healthcare, Alison. Preventative healthcare is far cheaper, It's far more effective, it has far greater outcomes. And yes, the government knows that these problems are being stored up for our children and, and in their teenage years and, and further out. And yes, it is allowing it to happen. And you know yourself, there's far more confectionery consumed by children, far greater volumes, there's far greater variety of it. And as a result, children are going to have massive problems. And I know myself, it's nearly until a pain, you know, a person, one of my teeth that I, I go, it's, it's not something any of us... Um, relish is doing but no. we know in the long run if, if you delay then you're talking about possibly losing a tooth
6: mm-hmm. and that
2: you know uh, has, has has repercussion on the rest of the teeth in your mouth but i just feel this has got to be addressed in the next month in january you know i have, I have i'm on the health form as a counselor with aim and i just always raise this issue you know then we're not even getting into oral surgery or orthodontics that's a whole other area that has very very little funding and like you know, it's very, very expensive. A Absolutely.
4: yeah. You go private and it's private. Hu- huge money, huge, it huge money. Huge and money. then you see people flying off to foreign countries and everything to have their teeth mm-hmm. done now because, as you said, it's so important. But look, thanks for raising the issue with us. Uh, that's Emer Tobin from Aintu in Mead uh, highlighting the waiting list for dental care in the area and not just theirs, all across the country. That's it. We've run out of time. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to all our callers, our texters and, of course, to Marie and Chris. I'll be back tomorrow. Bye.